was here last night whenever those teenagers came back and I noticed um, just a radiance from them. This was wonderful. I also noticed their smell uh, from having ridden in the bus for however long it was. We made Caleb take a shower. He was exhausted. I think he probably slept through the shower, but uh, he's here this morning and I'm thankful that they made it back safely. I'm thankful for the prayers and I pray that the afterglow lasts and lasts and lasts and actually never fades. Um, looking forward to hearing all the testimonies that we're going to hear from them in just a little bit about what God did in their life. I want you to open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 11. When I was in seventh grade. Uh, me and some of my friends, it wasn't me actually that instigated it, but I went along with it. We decided that we were going to have a skip day at school. We were going to rebel against school because we were sick and tired of being treated like students. And we thought we knew everything. And, um, and so we all, I mean, the whole seventh grade class decided we were just not going to show up the next day for school. Well, I went home and told my, my parents about my plan and uh, told them we were going to skip. And then it wasn't just me, it was going to be the entire class was going to skip out on school. And it, it wouldn't be, there'd be no point for me going to school anyway because no one was going to be there. And my dad said, sure, that's not a problem at all but you're going to work for me all day. You're going you're gonna to chop wood all day and, and haul and all this stuff. And I said, well, you know, and we had a wood-burning fireplace back then where I grew up, and, and we cut wood, and I knew what kind of work that was like, and I said, I think I'd rather go to school. <laughs> so the next day, I, I thought, I'm going to be the only one here. I showed up at school, and guess what? Every single one of my friends were there. Like, none of them skipped. They decided that going to school, or their parents told them or whatever, uh, was the right thing to do, and that rebellion was a bad idea. Uh, by the way, I apologize for the misprint in your bulletin. That's an effect of trying to get out of town on time. I gave Miss Betty the wrong title for my sermon, but my sermon is rebellion. As in the days of Noah, and we remember the passage from Matthew when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he said that it would be as in the days of Noah when the Son of Man returns. And it's an interesting fact, uh, the events of Genesis 11, some, some scholars have pointed out that for all of these things with the Tower of Babel and everything that's going to happen, they occurred in the days of Peleg, when the earth was divided, the, the languages were divided. And most scholars have said, well, Noah actually outlived Peleg. We'll get to that in a minute. But I, I just want you to know that what happens actually happens in the days of Noah. This rebellion that happens. He's alive to witness it. And so God, in His mercy, doesn't wipe them out, which He could have done. But because of His covenant, what we saw last week, because of His covenant, He allowed mankind to continue to live on this earth. Awaiting the days whenever the Savior would appear and we would have salvation. I want you to stand with me. We will read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 11. So stand with me. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar 
and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray, Father, that in our hearts we would sanctify Christ Jesus as Lord. And Lord, that he would be upon the throne of our hearts so that there would be nothing else that would take his place. And Lord, that we would leave off building our own kingdom. We would abandon that project. And we would take up the work of building your kingdom, both in our hearts and our own lives, as well in the lives of those around us, Lord. We may be faithful until you come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And so the biblical truth that I want you to see today as we look at the story of the Tower of Babel, every kingdom of man will crumble, but the kingdom of Christ will stand. Every kingdom of man will crumble. How many, how many projects have you started? I remember I, there was an old rusty uh, trailer, just a just an old flatbed trailer that my dad had whenever I was younger, and the axle was bent on the thing, and it needed a lot of work. And I decided I was going to get that trailer because I wanted to pull a lawnmower behind it. I wanted to cut grass and all these things. And so I got that trailer, and I, and I hooked it up, cleaned it up, aired up the tires, and pulled it down the street to my house where, from where it was. I pulled it down to my house, and I decided I was going to work on it. Well, I didn't ever work on it. And so we moved from there, and then I decided I was going to pull this trailer over to my father-in-law's because I surely would work on it there. So I pulled it over to my father-in-law's, and it got there to my father-in-law's, and it sat there, and I didn't work on it anymore. And finally, I decided to go to seminary, and the trailer wasn't going to come. I abandoned that project. And my father-in-law called me up one day and said, Hey, Josh, are you ever going to do anything with this trailer? If not, I'm going to sell it for scrap. And I thought, man, I never got around to that project. I let it go, and it got sold for scrap. And now it's gone. And that's the picture of the Tower of Babel. It was left off, and now today it's just a pile of rubble. There's nothing there. Disobedience always ends and disaster. It always ends in ruin. Rebellion ends in ruin. And anytime we take up that project to build our own kingdom in the face of God, we're pointing our fist at God and saying, God, we know better than you. And that act of rebellion, God will not take lightly. God will deal with it. We might say, well, God dealt with it rather mildly in this passage. 
But we're going to see what rebellion ultimately leads to. I want you to think about this. The descendants of Noah migrated from the mountains of Ararat and they settled in the plain of Shinar. Shinar means the land between two rivers. It was the two rivers Tigris and Euphrates. And these two rivers are, are different than their pre-flood counterparts. Shinar refers to a fertile land today that we know as Iraq. The plain of Shinar was very flat and the only building materials were clay soil and the tar that they used for mortar. So the people dug down and began building a city for themselves. The setting was in direct opposition to the command that God had issued to Noah and his sons after the floodwaters receded from the earth. Listen to Genesis 9-1 again. We've already read it, but I want you to remember this verse. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. Now, what do you see the people doing? They're not filling the earth. What are they doing? They're building a city. They're staying together. They're not being dispersed. They're staying together. And I want you to understand that God expects no less than total obedience to His Word. Whenever He issues a command and He writes it in His Word, it's never to be tampered with or twisted or trampled under your feet. It's meant to be trusted and obeyed. Whatever God says. Even if you don't understand it. Here's what rebellion truly is. It's God, I know better than you. I know better than you. And we've all been through those teenage years whenever we thought that about all of our parents and our teachers and our coaches. We've been through the rebellion, haven't we? We all have. Now, let's contrast this to the faith of Abraham and the obedience of Abraham for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 11, 8. Uh, now, this refers back to the book of Genesis uh, in 12 and following. Listen to what it says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that, was, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, you think about that for a minute. God told Abraham, Abram, listen, we're going to get up and we're going to go. And Abram said, God, where are we going? And God said to Abram, I'll show you when we get there. And Abram got up and went and took everything. His family and his possessions, his servants. And he left and he obeyed. What about the people of Babel? God had told them to go and fill the earth. But instead, they set out to build their own kingdom. Rebellion is going to end in disaster. Now, we know that disaster is coming, but they don't know that. But secondly, what I want you to see is that pride is your problem. That's your problem. When you have a rebellious heart, pride is the problem. Pride is saying, I know better than God, and I deserve better than I have. The Bible says it all happened in the days of Peleg, who outlived Noah. But if you back up, up on the line just a little bit, the son of Cush was Nimrod. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. 
He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kalneth, and the land of Shinar. So here's the thing about Nimrod. Nimrod was the leader of the rebellion. In the beginning, Nimrod was called a mighty man before the Lord, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So the Lord had obviously gifted him. He was a strong man. He was a, 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 a brilliant man, a man who was able to go out and hunt and provide, a man that was obviously strong, a, a woodsman, a craftsman maybe, a, a man of man, of men. And so if you think about Nimrod and all of the accolades, somewhere down the line, it went to his head. And Nimrod said, I want to be the king. I'm going to be the guy. When the people scattered from that place, they continued to do the same thing everywhere they went. The word migdal, which is translated tower here in the passage, actually means a rostrum or a raised platform of flowers in a pyramid shape. And all around the world, it's known as a ziggurat which is Assyrian for tower. I have a picture of a ziggurat down there somewhere, Miss Sue. We can put it up there for a second. We're going to come back to it. But did you know, this is, I'm going to let you look at this for just a minute before we go to the ziggurat. This is, we actually know where the Tower of Babel was built. It's actually about 52 miles south of the city of Baghdad in Iraq, in modern-day Iraq. And... Um, They've, they've looked at the site, they've excavated the site. Archaeologists are making new discoveries every single day. Archaeologist Leonard Woolley said that he was the chief architect, uh, archaeologist excuse me, at the ac- uh, excavation site, at the ziggurat at Ur. And he said, in every important city there is at least one such tower crowned by a sanctuary. The tower itself forming part of the larger temple complex. Of them all, the biggest and the most famous was the ziggurat of Babylon. That's the one that you see there. It was a, the, that was the biggest one. In the Hebrew tradition, it, was, it became the Tower of Babel. Now entirely destroyed, but its ground plan shows that it was uh, but a repetition on a larger scale of the ziggurat at Ur. The best preserved of all of these monuments. Now we have, a, we have uh, the, the ziggurat at Ur. You can actually go there today and you can see it. It's, a, it's basically a pyramid with a huge staircase that goes up. However, the one at Babylon was enormous. It was so much bigger. The measurements of the tower was 90 meters by 90 meters by 90 meters tall. That's almost 300 feet tall that these people built. 300 feet tall. During Hammurabi's reign, the tower was modified and preserved right around 1700 B.C. So we know that it existed from history and that they tried to preserve it, to keep it from crumbling. In Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 32, the excavations of the city of Babylon have revealed that Nebuchadnezzar's royal residence actually faced the Tower of Babylon. Now listen to what Nebuchadnezzar does in chapter 4. 
All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking out on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Notice that's similar to the words of the people of Babel. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and let, uh, with a tower with its tops in heaven, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be, be dispersed from over the face of the whole earth. We built the city. I just keep thinking about that old rock and roll song. We built this city on rock and roll. Yeah, we built this city. I mean, think of the pride and the rebellion. And so he says all this, I built this city my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, while the words were still in the king's mouth. I think it's interesting that the Bible points out in Daniel 4 that the king was speaking whenever this happened. He was speaking these things. And it was all about the words of their mouth, the pride. The words of your mouth reveal the pride of your heart. And while he was doing that, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. You think about that, and Nebuchadnezzar is on all fours, naked, out in the field, eating grass. Like a cow. And the day before, he's saying, look at my mighty power. God can humble you, can't he? Either you will be humble before God, or God will humble you before himself. It's one or the other. And it's a choice that you make to humble yourself before a mighty God. And know that you're not him. You are not him. He alone is God. Alexander the Great had the Tower of Babel knocked down because he wanted to rebuild it. Alexander the Great, you know the guy that conquered all of the world? Guess where he died? He died in Babylon. Wanting to build the Tower of Babel back for himself. It's interesting if you visit the Tower of Babel today, what once was a symbol of a great empire built in defiance of God has been reduced to a pile of mud and rocks. It's level. 1 John 2, 16-17 For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now who's that? That's you and me. If we do the will of God, we're going to abide forever. And these folks were trying to abide forever in their own strength and in their own power. And their pride was their problem. Pride is one of the seven things that the Lord hates according to the book of Proverbs. He hates haughty eyes. He hates the pride in our hearts. The evolutionary scientists decided that they didn't need God and that they could create life on their own through a series of chemical processes. Well, God came down to challenge them. He piled dirt up and blew the breath of life into the man and he became a living being. Then he looked at the scientists and said, your turn. The scientists began gathering dirt 
and shaping it into the form of a man. Then God stopped them. Uh Uh-uh. Use your own dirt. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The very same pride that existed in the hearts of the people of Babel still exists in our hearts today. It will keep you from acknowledging your need for a Savior. It will harden your heart toward your neighbor, the person sitting next to you, the person across the street, the person across the room. It will destroy your marriage. It will alienate your children and grandchildren. Let me back up and say that. It will destroy your marriage. you remember what Jesus said whenever they asked Him about Moses giving the people a certificate of divorce? Jesus said from the very beginning it wasn't this so it wasn't this way but because of the hardness of your heart he gave you that Why can't why can't we get along in our houses pride It will destroy your marriage it will alienate your children and grandchildren it can, can and will close the iron bars of hell upon your soul and pride and, and lust, are, are, they're two close allies that are aligned against you and your life. Notice what John said again in 1 John. He said, the lust of the eyes. What is that? That's, I want it. I see it and I want it. He said, the lust of the flesh, that's the, I need it. Not only do I want it, I need it. And the pride of life, I deserve it. But what does that all point to? It all points to the sickness of sin. So pride is your problem, but your sickness is sin. And if you think about this for just a minute, where does this come from? The inhabitants of ancient Babel wanted to build a tower to preserve themselves, possibly against another flood, but also to make a name for themselves. The Sumerian name for the Tower of Babel is Etimnaki, which means house of the foundation of heaven on earth. That's what it means. In other words, we're going to build heaven on earth. We're not going to allow God to wipe us out again. We're going to take care of that ourselves. And, and what's interesting about all of this is that the ziggurat, in all around the world, the ancient Mayans, the Incas, different places in Asia, the ziggurat always had a temple at the top. For the deity that the people worshipped. So they replaced God with their own God. Made in their own image. Or made in the likeness of created things. And the people would climb up to the top. And they would be in the presence of that God. Romans chapter 1. Paul's exploring the nature of man. And how he is sinful to his core and he says and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God not a God but the one true God God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness 
evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Listen to this one. Inventors of evil. They come up with different ways to disobey and be evil. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And when God looked down, He looked down upon the people. The Lord said in verse 6, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. When God looked at them and He said, Listen, they're evil to their core. And this is only the beginning of the evil that they will do. It reminds us of what he said in Genesis 6 verse 5. He said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. A ziggurat, a tower, is a feeble attempt to build a staircase to reach up to heaven. A ziggurat gets three things wrong. It gets wrong who God is. It makes God into our own image. Number two, it forgets who man is. That we're sinful to our core. And only the mercy of God will save us. And it forgets the distance between the two, God and man. Our own efforts will never allow us to reach to heaven. All the good that you will ever do in your life will never amount to anything whenever you stand before a holy God and He says, why should I allow you into my heaven? You say, well, look at all the good that I did. And God will say, look at the sin that you've done. God's holiness will not allow Him to be in the presence of sin. And so if we compare this to the days, the days of Noah to our day today, today people are coming together They're coming together all around the world. Not for good, but for evil. To build a one world system in the face of Almighty God. They want to make a name for themselves. We want to live long and prosper. Genetic engineering people in petri dishes and in test tubes attempting to make a genetically superior human race. You know, that's really happening today. The advent of artificial intelligence, by the way, Elon Musk, uh, just name drop here for just a second. He says that artificial intelligence is the greatest existential threat to the human race today. That's what he says. I don't know if you can believe Elon Musk. Uh, He's not a believer. But he does have his finger on the pulse of what's going on in the tech, world of technology. The elevation of the WHO, who? The World Health Organization. To become the singular governing body of the world very soon. They're setting the stage to do that. And here's, here's the problem at the core of all of this. It's the pride in the heart. It's the sin that we inherited from Adam 
And here's what they believe, that we can have it all without God. Salvation without God. Health, wealth, and prosperity without God. We can live on forever. If we can just invent the right thing, then we could live on forever without God. But the problem is all of the devices of man that are elevated in the face of God end up with disaster. Because disobedience ends in disaster. But I want to tell you, not only is pride your problem and sin your sickness, but Christ is the cure. Now, look at what the Lord says in verses 7 and 9. We're just going to home in here for just a moment. Verse 7, He says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, if I were God, which that's a bold phrase to even utter, but if I were God, I would look down at the children of man and I would see what they're doing and I would go, oh yeah, you think you're going to get away with that? Poof. I mean, I'd be like James and John, sons of thunder, we're going to call down fire on Babel, right? And we see what God does and God just comes down and He confuses languages. We say, well, God was just being really gentle, wasn't He? Yes, He was. God confusing the language, even though it was an act of judgment against Babel, it was also an act of mercy against the human race. Not against us, but for us. Because He preserved the people. Their rebellion would have ended in absolute ruin. But God, in His infinite mercy, allowed them to obey the command to fill the earth even in their unwillingness to do so. Isn't that amazing what our God does? And so He says, Come, let us confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. They abandoned their rebellion. It's almost like my children are making a ruckus downstairs and I hear them fussing and fighting. I gather myself up and I say, I'm coming down there. And then all of a sudden, they just drop whatever they're doing. Oh, everything's fine now. God's punishment was very mild. You know, there were at least 78 families uh, and language groups mentioned in Genesis prior to the Tower of Babel, and that went out at the scattering. Later, when we hear that there are more families mentioned in Genesis 10, it comes to close to 90. Close to 90 families and language groups. Today, there are more than 7,000 languages in the world. Vista-wide world languages and cultures and ethnologue companies that provide statistics on language agree that only 94 language families have been so far ascertained. If you think about that. So, so the, the, the linguists are telling us exactly what the Bible tells us. Is that all the languages that we speak came from one language. And of that language, probably 94 families of languages have come from that. Which represent all of the 7,000 languages that we have today. Well, why would God do this? Why would God choose to do it this way? 
Paul answers the question in Acts 17 and he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. Why did God send people out all from different directions and yet make them all similar and common? And was to remember that we all came from one source. We all are all descendants of Noah, who was a descendant of Adam. And God made us all the same. And it was to remind us. Now, Paul didn't stop there. Paul told the men of Athens that from the descendants of Noah came one man, Jesus Christ. And He was a sinless man. He was the descendant of Abraham. The one who was promised that through Him all nations would be blessed. And as we think about that truth, what we realize is that God was being merciful keeping the people of the earth alive here in Genesis 11. And he had a plan. And his plan was to send his one and only son. And just like in Genesis 11, whenever God came down, there was a day where God came down again. And this time, he took on the form of a baby. And he lived among us. He dwelt among us. And he was sinless. We are sin sick because of what we've inherited from Adam. This man was sinless. He lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. But then, because of the rebellion of those around him, he died on the cross. It was the ultimate anti-rebellion. The act of obedience. He was obedient to the point of death. The Bible says, as a sheep before its shears are silent, is silent, so was he. And He died for us, you and me, so that we could have eternal life. Christ is the cure of all of it. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Some of you have been working real hard. This is, this is what you do. This is what we do. We're working really, really hard to get to that next level, that next point, that next stage of our life where we'll be set. And that's what we say. We use that word, we're going to be set. I'm going to be set when I can do this or I have done that. But what I want you to see today is whatever those things that you're trying to overcome are truly not the problem. Whatever tower you're trying to build is not the solution. Sin is the, is the problem and Christ is the solution. And so what I want to do today, what I, what I hope I can do, and maybe the Lord has, has pressed on your heart and your mind where you've been building a tower. You've been building your own kingdom and it's been in rebellion against God. Even if you didn't know it was, 
It wasn't what God had designed for your life. And He's telling you right now to abandon the tower. To walk away from it. To leave it behind. To determine in your heart and mind that Lord's will is best no matter what. It's His will and it's His will alone. I don't know if that's a relationship or if it's a job or if it's a it's an endeavor. Whatever it is that the Lord's saying to walk away from that rebellion, I want to invite you to just put it down. Quite simply and quite frankly, some of you Power is simply trying to live your life the way that you want to live it. And because of the pride of your heart, you've, you've shut the door to the Holy Spirit and Jesus has been knocking at the door and you won't let Him in because you've got this. You know how you want to run your life. But today He's saying, I'm going to ruin that tower. And He's going to knock it down. And He's coming to your heart right now And asking for you to let him in. And he's saying, I am the one that died for you. I am the solution. I am the cure. And if you'll let him in, you can be saved today. So if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. It's a simple prayer. It's your admission that you need him and that you can't do it on your own. It's the end of your rebellion. So pray this prayer with me. Say, Lord Jesus... I admit to you that I am a sinner. I've done things that I know are wrong and I have failed to do what I know is right. I have rebelled against you, but Jesus, the rebellion ends here and now. I ask you to come into my heart. Build your kingdom in my heart. Make me a new person. Forgive my sin. I am a sinner, but you're sinless. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And thank you that you're alive today and that I can worship you today. I'm going to spend the rest of my my life living for you and loving you. And Jesus, I know that because of your promise, I will go to be with you when I die. Thank you for my salvation. In your name I pray. Amen. You stand with me. I'm going to sing our invitation. This is your opportunity for you to let it be known that you've just asked Jesus into your heart. If you've received Him as your personal Lord and Savior, you come. If you're looking for a place to worship and you know that God has called you to Myrtle Grove Baptist Church to join us in fellowship and in ministry and to be a member here, then you come. If you just need prayer, our altar counselors will be here to welcome you and pray for you. So you come as we sing together. Don't wait. Come. Don't my